Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Victor Navarro and Thiago Falcao, really happy to have you here for this episode of Keywords in Play. Can we get a brief introduction to yourselves in your own words? Do you want to go first, Thiago? Uh, yeah, sure. Hey, guys. Hi for the audience. I'm a Brazilian researcher working on game studies for, uh, well, a bit more than a decade right now. I'm a professor in the course of digital media in the Federal University of Paraíba. All of our biggest universities in Brazil are state-sponsored, so I'm in one of those. And I am in the field of communication and media studies right now. I started on game studies by researching agency, so I was very obsessed with the theme for a while. I wrote my dissertation on agency, trying to crossbreed the term coming from the discipline of game studies, but also taking it to a more sociological understanding. I used, uh, at the time, I was very caught up with Bruno Latour's actor network theory. So I was really interested in the theme. So it's a theory that discusses agency profoundly. So I wanted to see how it happened in virtual worlds. And I discussed the world of Warcraft. Once someone said to me, everyone discusses World of Warcraft once in their lives, right? Right now, uh, my work kind of took a shift and I'm delving into political waters, maybe because of the situation that's been in place in Brazil, in the whole world in some fashion, but, but specifically in Brazil because of our government. So I'm dealing with the cultural politics of video games right now, specifically looking at esports, the esports, Brazilian esports scene. Uh, my name is Victor, Victor Navarro. Uh, I'm a lecturer and a researcher here in, in Mataró near Barcelona. I read my dissertation in 2013, so it's been quite a long time. And I've been working on game studies uh, for yeah, more or less a decade, a bit more than a decade. I've seen how game studies have started to take shape in Spain and how people have started to come together. So we will discuss that later. And I come from communication as well. When I tried to defend uh, video games as a valid object of study, I had to sort of make room for it in communication. And I consider myself to be primarily a media scholar. But, yeah, that's, that's one of the ways of looking at video games as part of a wider and bigger picture. I'm a media scholar working in games and uh, have been working in video games and, and, and sometimes analog games for a decade, decade plus, and my interests are very varied, actually. I mean, my dissertation was focused on freedom, almost by, by, purely by chance, because I, I ended up discussing freedom 
mostly from a formal perspective, but I've been following my curiosity, so to speak, for this decade. I've written on, on post-colonial video games together with Beatriz uh, Perez Zapata. I have a huge interest in, in Japanese video games as Japanese and as transnational products. Recently, I've been uh, looking into the realities of video games in Europe, because I think that's something we tend to ignore. We discuss Japanese video games, we discuss American video games, and we ignore the realities of video games as products and as uh, creations here in Europe. Mm-hmm. And I tend to uh, research very weird stuff. One of my interests is in video game preservation and especially in failure. So I tend to look for these holes and these, these places that have been kind of ignored. So that makes it very exciting as a researcher, but I, it makes it very hard for me to describe my main focus and my perspective and my position. And uh, I don't consider myself to be neither formalist, neither political. Uh, this is kind of the discussion at the moment. It's kind of the ludology versus narratology of the moment. And I think I'm, I'm kind of in between everything. So. <laughs> I will gladly discuss all those people research in this episode other than my own. But yeah, the last thing I can say is that I've been working on Zen modes, uh, Zen in video games and slow gaming for the best part of the past five years. Can each of you like kind of tell me a little bit about the history of games research and the way that it relates to other disciplines and some of the key theorists and thinkers that are being discussed at the moment? This is an interesting question because I have been trying to look at Brazilian game studies from a historical perspective right now. Even though I've been saying that Brazilian game studies are difficult to grasp, and there's a reason for that, and it's what drives my work right now. You see, when we as a community, we started researching video games in the middle of the 2000s, our early works, they date from between 2003, 2007. We were absolutely, as a community, as a country, we were absolutely obsessed with the ideas that were stemming from the Northern Hemisphere. So we wanted to be able to discuss ludology and narratology because we felt that was a place to be. And I think Brazil stayed with that for for a long time. Brazilian game scholars, of, of course, they, they stayed with that type of discussion for a long time. It really shows up in their work. Again, this is what drives me to my current work, because there's no history of video games and video game studies. I'm being unfair. There are some scholars that work in that area, of course, but they are a few, a handful of scholars. And uh, most of our scholars, they were trying to discuss philosophy, the philosophy of computer games, of video games. And you see, there's a problem with that, and you kind of foreshadowed the the problem, uh, Dashana, because you said, well, this is an Anglophone podcast, and even though you're talking to two people that are from Latin backgrounds, if I may say that about you, Victor, uh, this is still in English, right? And uh, for people in Brazil, it's been very difficult to actually produce an output on research because of this 
exclusivity, I'm going to call that, I don't know if that's the best word for it, but this exclusivity of English in academia. So there are some people that are starting to discuss this, this problem, this, this question. But we were trying all this time, we were trying to do philosophy in Portuguese and we had Again, I'm being generalistic, right? It was difficult to, to actually strike a dialogue with people from the Northern Hemisphere. So even though we have an output of research in Brazil, we have scholars and we have what I would call a tradition, but, but uh, it's not a, a very grounded one. We are not particularly cited worldwide, abroad, because of this, because of this difficult in writing in English. So that gives us a real problem. You see, it's a very consonant problem with the, the idea of coloniality, right? Uh, we tend to forget our roots and we tend to align ourselves as scholarship with the Northern Hemisphere. And we are trying uh, right now, there, there's a, a lots of scholars right now that are embarking in this attempt to correct this, to, to retcon it, right? We are trying to address this problem. So there's a lot of people who are working in Brazilian communities inside the video games. The idea of what is play for the Brazilian people. Well, the idea that all of these concepts we've been discussing for decades, they resonate within us in a very particular way. And it isn't really fulfilling to just discuss European or North American scholarship without thinking about how it resonates and how it happens in Brazil. So this sort of sums up how the Brazilian game scholars community have been looking at video games right now. I will say we have a similar situation here in Spain. In regards to this, uh, I'm, I'm going to call it the import business. When we started, we, we are basically a, a bunch of misfits. And the situation in Spain is quite weird because we have three uh, very early and, and very, very uh, admirable pioneers with uh, Clara Fernandez Vara, Susana Tosca and, and Miguel Sicard. But they moved northwards. They went to the north mm -hmm. and they went to America. They went to, to uh, Denmark. So they became kind of nationalized there. And when we found out about them, uh, they were already names coming from America and coming from Denmark. So they paved the way for people here in Spain and they have done an amazing work and they visit us and they work with us. But in that foundational moment, they had to leave. They were forced to leave actually by their universities. I mean, it's not my story to tell, but their situation was... Um, not one of looking for opportunities uh, abroad because they wanted to travel abroad, but basically looking for a space where they could discuss video games. Uh, my situation was not that different, actually. When I, when I uh, enrolled my PhD program, it was in 2007. I had to defend video games as a valid object within communication, as I said before. There's a paper uh, from 2014 by Antonio José Planes called The Emergency of Game Studies as a, a distinct discipline in Spanish, La Emergencia de los Game Studies como Disciplina Propia. And at that time, he posed that video games were becoming 
a valid object and that game studies were kind of arising in the country. That never came to happen, sadly, I would say. And I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but we have been always kind of slipstreaming behind the North or slipstreaming behind America and behind uh, the Nordic countries or behind uh, England. So it's been a situation where lots of people kind of discover that they can analyze video games in university and they try to import game studies into their departments, into their realities. So what they look for is normally the big names, normally the big debates, the big references, the big, the big things they have to use as kind of a self-validation process. So we have been going on for the best part of, of the past two decades here, but not until recently. We started kind of coming together and working on uh, special issues and trying to make visible the reality of the lack of game studies in Spain, so to speak. We basically publish in English. I mean, we can publish in Spanish, but we don't have a journal for game studies in Spanish. And when we have made special issues uh, focus on video games, we normally do it in journals that are very international oriented. So that solves the problem and doesn't solve it at the same time. I mean, we do have theories and debates and, and, and figures that we look up to, but we have been kind of trying to be part of this international community before creating a national community. And I think that that's the main problem with countries that are not the Nordic countries or America, or I don't know your experience in Australia, but maybe it's kind of similar. I think video games are still trying to look and find their place in academia. I mean, it's baffling that we are, we are still there. Things are, are looking bright at the moment, but we have been in that situation for, for a long time. And I still see PhD students, candidates, kind of narrowing their research and their framework to the decade between 2000 and 2010 to Nordic and American names. And we are still trying to create a, I mean, there's nothing uh, essential about Spanishness, but a Spanish game studies uh, space. So, yeah, it's still a work in process. It's really interesting insofar as you're both talking about the history and the disciplinary formation of what makes it possible to talk about games in the academy in various parts of the world, in various linguistic communities, um, and that uh, is part of why we're having this conversation at all. Very excitingly, uh, there are two new DIGRA chapters that you uh, respectively have been involved in the formation of. Do you think that that coalesces or brings together some of the forces that you've been talking about that have prevented people from being able to devote intellectual activity to this medium? Yeah, it'd be really interesting to, to hear about what was involved in people deciding let's let's start a chapter in each region and each country. I don't know about you, Tiago, but I think the positive side of this in Spain, we have uh, been so long without a chapter or without any kind of association that uh, there might have been something good in there. And the good part is that we are very internationalist. We like to travel. We like to conferences in other countries. We like to publish in Spanish. It's one of the motivations that brought me into academia. But the problem we detected almost 10 years ago is that 
we still have to fight to be part of the Spanish university, Spanish academy. And we still find people, uh, mainly PhD students, who are being, um, how to put it, they have uh, supervisors not belonging to games or to media specializing games, and they are kind of lost. I didn't want to say adrift, but my <laughs> the word I was thinking of was adrift. And we need some kind of structure if we want to continue being part of the international community, but from a stronger perspective and with a stronger um, contribution, we need a national structure. And that's the rationale be behind the, the, the Spanish chapter. And that's something that we have been discussing. Spain is very, very different in every region and uh, people are kind of disconnected and it's very hard to bring us all together. But these conversations have been going on for many years now and we have always said we need something like DIGRA, we need a, a chapter within a, an association and it's so good to see it finally happen. I don't know about you, Tiago. Now, uh, hearing you talk about Spain like that makes me think that it is very much alike Brazil uh, because I have a very much alike tale to tell about Brazilian game studies. Uh, the first thing about it is we don't have game studies as an area, right? Because as I was saying, research science in brazil is largely state-sponsored so uh, we have councils that actually fund universities and these councils uh, we have two agencies uh, the national research development council and i wouldn't know how to tr translate the other one but two agencies and they fund the universities and they actually decide what areas they want to fund there are no video games in any of those areas, so it's a, a void, it's a desert. We have this bit of appropriation of the matter when we took video games and brought them, for example, into the communication field. So I can say that the whole Degra chapter in Brazil is in the communications field. Me, Sueli, Gabriela, Ivan, and uh, Mariana Leticia. They are all PhDs and uh, students of communication. It's still, I, I just got this review from an article from one of our journals the last night, and it said, wow, you have to explain why video games are communication or else, <laughs> and the famous reviewer too, right? So why did we try and put this together? Because we wanted institutionality, right? I've been saying this to the Brazilian audience for a while now. We need institutionality to be able to actually fight for funding. It boils down to that, right? It boils down to having money to do research, having money to fund students, having money to send people abroad. The idea of the chapter is to help this institutionality that is, is very shy at the moment in Brazil. And I, th I think it's that. I think for what Victor tells us, it's very alike. It's very, uh, the, the problem is the same. And uh, I'll, I'll be frank with one thing. The fact that many of the Brazilian students, they still try to establish a dialogue with the Northern Hemisphere instead of 
looking to Brazil, it mm -hmm. uh, still represents a problem because I know I repeat myself, but if, if you don't look at yourself, you don't know what are your well, fragilities and your strengths, right? So if you do a, a bibliometrical study of Brazilian game studies, you will not see a picture of Brazil represented in there. You will see a picture of uh, Northern philosophy, Western philosophy, right? Mm. So this is why we're trying to, to put together this, this chapter and, uh, well, and so on. Yeah, and I, think, and I think a chapter has a very special kind of stability that you don't get with a single individual. If it were up to myself, I will live in a cave and uh, with no internet connection and I will be a hermit and I will be perfectly happy. But someone had to do it. A chapter is something that outlives, I mean, not literally, I hope to, to get uh, 80 or 90 at least, but uh, the founding members are not going to be the only people working in this chapter. The idea is to create something that people can inherit and something people can use and something people can have in their presentation card, so to speak, and say, no, no, I'm part of this community and this community is supporting me financially and intellectually and, and even emotionally. It's very hard to do research. Uh, I'm going to go into an attack and a rant on neoliberalism now, but I think we are not supposed to be islands. We are supposed to be people talking constantly to each other and sometimes collaborating, often collaborating, sometimes working all by ourselves and, 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 and lonely and like these crazy writers that never see the light of day. But academia is supposed to be built on the shoulder of giants and through a constant dialogue. So if you want to have a dialogue, as, as Tiago said, you need to talk to the people that is surrounding you because we have mistaken uh, online availability with real presence and real conversation. And I'm very happy to, to Skype or Zoom with uh, PhD students, uh, with colleagues. I ask my colleagues constantly for help and for ideas and suggestions. And that's something that still demands kind of a, a return to geography, so to speak, a return to traveling. And, and nowadays with the pandemic, we uh, at least I dream of trains and I dream of driving my car up to a friend's house and, and, and visiting people and spending a lovely afternoon and discussing things we are reading. And that kind of structure, institutionality, Tiago said, I think that's a very good word is, again, something that you don't get when you try to be a rock star or the only scholar of your country or the lonely hero that Umberto Eco warned mm -hmm. against many years ago. Can you talk about some of the current trends that each Jigra chapter is seeing right now? What's the exciting research and what are the kind of like really driving questions that the scholars are asking? As for Brazil, the discussion about philosophy and uh, mechanics. There's something Victor said in the beginning of the podcast that was perfect, that the buckle between formalism and politics, they are the new dispute between narratology and ludology, as in the importance video game studies are actually dispensing to it right now. It isn't different in Brazil. We have a bunch of scholars working on mechanics and this more formalistic processes and aspects of video games. And there is this political 
trend which has been going on for a while now and it stems from the political situation of the country so we are trying to deal with toxicity and toxic masculinity in video games so these are two excellent topics to discuss and of course neoliberalism yeah i think you're onto something when i started my main motivation to study video games was that i had theoretical tools to analyze every media i loved like music, punk music, I love punk, so I had theory on punk. Um, comics, I had theory on comic books. Film, screenwriting, uh, animation, I had theory on that. When I wanted to dig for meaning in video games, I had nothing. And that's something Clara Fernandez Barra says in the introduction to game analysis. We lacked the tools. That's when this push for formalist tools arose and that's where it came from and i think that was a necessary step but we looked for the tools to dig for meaning so you cannot really separate that if you want to criticize um neoliberalism and colonialism you want to know how the media operates uh the, the medium in particular how this medium operates and how things work in video games this sort of artificial divide we are seeing at the moment i'm glad to say is not um taking place in, in spain i mean uh, we, Again, we have been working separately for many years, but there's been lots of exchanges. And if there are unifying forces or unifying keywords, I can't, I'm comfortable in saying that we are mostly from humanities and social sciences, and we have had official uh, state-funded, uh, state-sanctioned uh, projects on uh, the Great Recession, on the... Um, past decades crisis, economic crisis and neoliberalism and how that reflected in society. But uh, going back to my motivation to study video games, I think that I don't want to call it film studies envy, but I do, I do envy film studies in how they can face anything they have in front of them. Like uh, you can focus on also, you can focus on social uh, aspects of representation. You can focus on studies of contemporary cinema and of intertextualities. And we seem kind of uh, mentally locked into very old ideas of media and media panics, moral panics. Like, in order to justify what we are doing, we have to either discuss the dangers, like moral panics, or you have to celebrate video games as contributing something to society. I would like to discuss video games as meaning, as something that has meaning, and focus on that, and then look for, and I, I'm, I'm making it very complicated, I, I, I hope this makes sense. Uh, let's look for effects later. We are too obsessed with effects, like video games are good, video games were bad a few years ago, and that's why we're still kind of defending the, the medium. But I, I think that we need to look for meaning. And if you want to dig for meaning, you need stuff like psychoanalysis. We, we have psychoanalysts in, in, the, in the book I edited, um, Pensar el Juego, uh, thinking, thinking play or thinking the game. We have engineers, we have uh, philosophers, we have heaps of people from the humanities and people that normally don't write about video games. I invited them to give us their perspective and to discuss, I don't know, um, creative industries and cultural industries and have this uh, cultural studies perspective. So we are very, 
weird mix. Again, I said that we are a bunch of misfits, and I, I will hold to that. But I think we are a bunch of misfits coming from this romantic idea of the humanities and this romantic idea of meaning qua meaning. I don't know if that makes sense, but meaning as something valuable. We look at the object, we look at video games, and then we study society, and then we study how things take shape. And, and for example, one of the things we have to do in the future is to contribute to the writing of a more complete history of video games in Spain. We are too dependent on the history of American video games and, and how, I don't know, uh, The Legend of Zelda came out in 1986, but it wasn't available in Spain until 1989. And you have people remembering having played the game in 1986. Uh, yeah. The thing I've seen a couple of weeks ago was an argument about the, the industry and how the industry, it, it kind of doesn't risk by developing new games that appeal to new audiences. It was a very well-made argument, but it was so off the point because it's not at all how it works in what we call the global south, right? And how we call the countries that were colonized, that have the colony as their background. Because as we see, it's right now here in Brazil, these video games, the video games catered to the, the Northern Hemisphere and people actually will think, well, uh, I cannot afford to uh, play this video game because of the price. And I'm, I'm not talking about consoles and AAA games. I'm talking precisely about games that rely on microtransactions, right? Mm -hmm. So you think, well, if, you spend, I don't know, $40 on some type of virtual good in a video game in the United States, you cannot hope people will actually spend this kind of money because a dollar is right now 575 reais, which is a lot right now. The real is very low right now on, on its value. So you cannot expect people from here to actually consume right these games yet they do and they they really put everything into these games when we talk about the cfp which is called the colonization of play it exactly follows the idea that play has been appropriated by capitalism is what says in the, in the cfp uh, play has been appropriated by capitalism in many of its dimensions and we want to look at it in the global south because this appropriation how capitalism overall neoliberalism how it appropriates play in the northern hemisphere is much more pernicious and uh, insidious in countries that cannot hope to consume these goods you have many routes to the problem but i'll narrow it down to desire so you have many social phenomena that stems from that desire and that are explained by this relationship between neoliberalism and play, right? So we have, for example, both of you being, well, I don't know if you follow soccer or football in there, Bashana, but uh, Victor being from Barcelona, I'm sure he knows of it. Maybe he doesn't like it, but he sure knows about it because I do know about it here in Brazil. 
It's not something you can flee from. I'm talking about soccer because, or football, I don't know. Uh, I'm talking about football because, uh, because I want to stress how the football players, they behave and they behave like superstars, spending lots of money. And if you look at Brazilian esports players right now, they play the game as football players. So they, they are posing with models, with Lamborghinis, with mansions and well we want to tackle the whole of the problem or at least as much as we can in this special issue both discussing of course the brazilian aspect of it of it and we're really hoping at having some pieces from abroad as i said I, i'm gonna personally translate these or oversee the translation uh, because we are in this attempt of establishing this dialogue right so i think it's important both to have brazilian uh, mm. scholars speaking there and of course the the audience and the scholars from abroad so kind of a detox moment uh, looking for what we need to tell our own story and looking for every tool we can use for this. And again, it, it's a bit jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, I'll share with you a list of special issues I put together a few weeks ago. And some of them are in English, some of them are in Spanish, but you can check it and use Google Translate. And I think that that's a very good picture of the past decade. The book is in Spanish. So again, uh, quite a bit hard to read it if you don't speak either Portuguese or French or Italian. Uh, and I will direct people towards this last special issue in Latalante, for Latalante. Uh, not because I was a guest coordinator, but because I think it's a very good picture of how people are debating ludonarrative complexity, which again is kind of a crystallization of these mixed perspectives and how we didn't have this uh, ludology versus narratology moment and how we don't really have this politically motivated versus formalist debate at the moment and how we mix and match everything together. But I think we do have work and we do have stuff people can read and and we hope the chapter is something to celebrate and to bring people here and to connect us to every one of you. So very happy to be here and thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure and an honor. The honor is ours. Thank you so much for an amazing conversation and all the best with the projects and the chapters. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.org.